Friends, colleagues, and secret admirers, welcome back to Season 2 of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Marina White. Marina, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Most definitely. We're excited to have you on. Give us a little background where you're coming from. So you're in you're in Carleton right now, but what are you studying? What lab are you in? What are you doing? Yeah, so I am in, I've just finished my first semester of my master's. So I'm an MSc student in the health sciences department um, and I'm in the Connor lab. So it's a developmental origins of health and disease lab. Um, and my general research interests are kind of within the maternal health, uh, global health and neuroscience fields. So yeah, my research kind of combines those areas. That's a lot of areas. Yeah, yeah. very broad areas too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm interested in see that I, I know very little about what we're going to be talking about today because I know your topic, but uh, tell us and our viewers what we're going to be learning today because there's a lot to learn. There's a ton. Yeah. yeah. So broadly, I'm going to be talking about uh, maternal HIV infection and the efforts of researchers to kind of better understand how maternal HIV infection may affect the development of an infant. So when I talk about maternal HIV infection, I'm talking about situations where women living with HIV become pregnant. And we're actually going to be talking about HIV exposure uh, in the womb. So mom is living with HIV, becomes pregnant, uh, baby is being exposed to an altered in utero environment that may be affected by uh, the disease of the mother as well as any drugs that the mom is taking to manage the disease right. um, in the case of uninfection of the fetus. So we're going to be talking about cases where the fetus is exposed to HIV, but they themselves actually don't contract the virus. Okay. Um, and we'll talk about why increasingly that situation, those circumstances are more important to study uh, than infant HIV infection itself. Okay. So there are two cases. So there are basically two scenarios that can occur within yeah. the womb, right? So they, yeah. the child... The, in utero they can be affected by the HIV or it can just be their environment surrounding them. Exactly. So okay. they can be exposed to the altered environment and contract the virus or they can be exposed to the altered environment but not actually themselves become infected with Which, HIV. And so do we know why they become infected yes. versus yeah. not infected? Yeah. So it actually rela relates to the disease stage or the viral load mainly of the mother. So as access to ARTs, which are antiretroviral therapies, they're the drugs that are used to manage HIV, um, has increased. Um, HIV has become better managed and the extent of the virus or the load of the virus in the mothers decreases and that decreases the transmission risk to the fetus. So more and more we're seeing that HIV is actually not transmitting to the infant. So as the rate of transmission decreases, we have an increasing number of infants being born who are exposed but uninfected. Interesting. So, yeah. so without the ARTs, they're at a higher risk of yes. infecting the child. Yeah, a much uh, higher risk. Um, at, if HIV is left unmanaged, right. there's a much higher risk of transmission from mom to fetus. Yeah. I'm curious, what is the in utero transmission rate? Now? Now, with ART yeah, therapy. So it varies country to country. Um, Canada, it's well under 1%. Um, my research is actually based in South Africa, where I believe they've hit just under the 2% mark, which is a really incredible achievement. Mm -hmm. um, worldwide, about 80% of women who are become pregnant and have HIV have access to ARTs. And if their HIV is being managed effectively, um, they've been on the drugs long enough, um, they have good treatment adherence, which is a huge barrier. Um, often treatment adherence is a lot more challenging than people with no knowledge of what the treatment looks like might think. Um, the transmission risk is very, very low. Yeah. Wow. That's actually yeah. staggering. I would have I would yeah. have thought it would be way higher. Like, yeah. I, I don't know why. I have no, no side for No, it's a really... To back it up. But, yeah, incredible, wow. incredible feat, for yeah. sure. And and you mentioned treatment adherence, and I, I completely agree, knowing a little bit about, like, health psychology and how hard it is to get people to actually yes. uh, maintain treatment adherence, like, the actual treatment yeah. regimens. Yeah. Uh, I can see why that would be a big deal, uh, especially with an HIV when you're taking daily medication. Daily medication. Totally, yeah. So if you get depending on the age that you get diagnosed, it can be decades and decades of commitment to this daily drug um, and misconceptions around the quality of life that's achievable. So why even bother taking the drugs if you don't, if no one's effectively communicated to you what quality of life you can achieve? Mm. Um, as well as like HIV is such a stigmatized disease. So there's so many barriers to disclosure for so many people and that can uh, put up barriers to them even accessing the drugs or talking to 
people who could help them access these treatments about the fact that they are HIV positive. Right. Um, so there's so many circumstances. Yeah, I didn't even think about the stigma associated with getting the drug itself, right? Yeah. Like having to go out and say, I, I need this I have drug HIV. because yeah. I have HIV, right? Yeah. And I could see that being another barrier, that totally. an added barrier that's not even needed when it comes to, med- like to treatment adherence because exactly. treatment adherence it's in general is... already so difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so even like going to get like allergy medicine, I couldn't imagine yeah. Yeah, somebody in that situation having to go yeah. to a local pharmacy or whatever. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of like, and this is a crude crude comparison, but it's like going and buying condoms. You yeah. know, it's it's best for your health and yes. for your safety, <laughs> but you're you're stigmatized by the fact that you have to go buy condoms at the pharmacy. Yeah, and I can see that being increased to the next degree totally. with HIV, where yeah. you're like, I have HIV, I need this medication. Uh, or else I will not be the same person. Exactly. Right? And a lot of people experience super ex- uh, severe side effects too with the drugs. So that is just an added, once you get the drugs and you're taking the drugs, it can be extremely difficult to stay on the drugs. That was um, something that I was actually going to mention because uh, for me, I'm curious about the cognitive aspects of it. And yeah. something like, yeah. you know, treatment adherence is a huge problem. But if you're also sort of wavering between whether you're taking the drug or coming off the effects of it, you've got the side effect or you don't and it's always kind of changing and manipulating yeah. or, or being moderated by these other factors like it, it'd just be a nightmare for yeah. for your brain to and so this is just i guess I, this is a definition that you might not have been expecting me to ask but uh whenever i hear treatment adherence i think okay just taking medication every day or not taking medication is not treatment adherence right mm. but taking medication when it's not supposed to be prescribed so it's going on and off is also yeah. not treatment adherence yes yeah. right yeah. so you can have poor treatment adherence yes. versus no, like complete non-adherence yeah like right? abstinence yeah You're not yeah adherence. abstinence from drugs. <laughs> yeah. You can, yeah. yeah so like what kyle said was like this like wavering of going on and off the mm-hmm. off the pills or off the off the medication that is really poor treatment adherence and that's something yeah. that could be even worse than not taking yeah, the drugs in the first because place there could be a con- a misconception that because you're taking the drug at all, yeah. it's still doing what it's supposed to. And you see that even with something like birth control, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You, oh, I took the pills 15 I took the pill, out of 30 days. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I should be fine. <laughs> yeah, so with something like this, when it's, one, there's not as much information being thrown around about it because it's such, like, it's actually not that niche, but it is niche because we don't actually talk about treatment adherence to HIV in, like, the common conversation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there could totally be misconceptions about how often and how how strictly you have to adhere to this drug regimen to really combat and lower Absolutely. lower your viral load it's so highly stigmatized I think. totally yeah. yeah so sorry we we totally got derailed there I, I feel like all that conversation might actually end up at the end yeah in the mm. midst of this honestly separate. i think i like it i think i like it i think i'm just gonna go into we're gonna go into hiv now to like say like yeah. now that we've talked about it a little bit yeah what, what is it? What's actually like, <laughs> not everybody HIV? knows fully yeah. what HIV totally. is, or pe- unless you're doing research in it, like Marina, uh, not a lot of people know really the, the disease course with HIV, mm-hmm. uh, the, like how you can contract HIV necessarily. Yes, There's yeah. different ways you can contract HIV. There's a lot so, of ways you can't contract it. The yes, people that'd be fear interesting that too. you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got a list. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, lay it down for us, Marina. Yeah. What does HIV, what is HIV first off and yeah. what like, What's the disease course look like? So HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And essentially it's a virus that um, infiltrates and attacks and kills a certain type of immune cell that's really important uh, for proper functioning of your immune system and your ability to fight off uh, disease states within your body. Um, And people often, I think, mix up HIV versus AIDS. So people will say something like, oh, he gave her AIDS or things like that. And that's actually not accurate. Um, AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. So it's not a virus, it's a condition. And you can kind of think of AIDS as an advanced condition that is caused by HIV. So when we talk about transmission, we're talking about the transmission of the virus, not of a condition. Because when you first contract HIV, you don't have an advanced condition. The virus has not attacked your entire body yet. So it's not accurate accurate to say that someone contracted AIDS. Mm-hmm. Because most people nowadays who contract HIV will not actually go on to contract AIDS because they'll access proper and effective um, managements. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I think I'm thinking of like the skeptic, the like, what's the person with the tinfoil hat, <laughs> conspiracy theorist, uh, <laughs> thinking like, well, I contracted a very aggressive HIV and now yeah. I have AIDS right away. That's yeah. not a thing. No, it doesn't no, no, matter no. How, how you got the HIV. There's no like super HIV that's going to give you AIDS right away. It just no, doesn't happen. it's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a misconception yeah. that a lot of people do have. And yeah. I've, I've heard it before. Because like, the oh, virus yeah. actually needs time yeah. to replicate and kill more cells before mm-hmm. your body becomes immune deficient. Yeah. And actually just another point about 
a challenge to treatment adherence. A lot of people find out that they're HIV positive, whether it be through um, a blood tests or what, yeah, they may not necessarily be symptomatic yet. So they begin taking these drugs that make them ill and they oh, weren't wow. actually experiencing symptoms of the HIV yet. So the perception of that can be that the drugs are just making them feel sicker because they didn't actually have an experience of being sick with the HIV yet because they weren't feeling the effects of it. Um, so that can be a major challenge too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So give us a kind of full, uh, like as, as brief as I guess you can get with the disease course. So what would happen? So you contract HIV. Um, what happens if you do not take medication? Um, the virus would continue to replicate. Okay. Um, it would continue to affect, infect more cells, um, kill off those immune cells. Your immune system would progressively become weaker as it loses more and more of those immune fighting um, kind of warrior cells that make up our immune system. And eventually your immune system would be unable to fight off um, any sort of infection that may come in. So it's actually quite common for um, people with advanced AIDS to contract diseases like cancer and things like that. And that's actually what can be um, the cause of mortality um, because their immune system was unable to fight any sort of infection. So those really big, scary infections have a really easy place to take hold. Mm -hmm. um, but ideally, um, most people will access treatment and the virus will stop replicating and you can actually get an undetectable viral load it's called so the viral level in the body the number of copies per blood is actually how it's measured um will be so low that one it's untransmittable undetectable untransmittable is kind of the saying um and they can live a long healthy life with the same similar life expectancy as someone who's hiv negative that's an amazing feat for science yeah yeah, and, and yeah. it's, it's just so, so impressive. incredible yeah it's, yeah it's one of those things that was a huge epidemic totally and like yeah. so many people were dying from it and now it's manageable which is it's just unbelievable yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely really incredibly cool. manageable if not almost yeah yeah well, I mean, yeah it's yeah. insane um and so with that okay that's cool that's really cool <laughs> let's get but, to the research question then yeah, yeah we'll go into the research question we'll jump in. yeah so now that we have an idea of what hiv is and just <laughs> a quick note before we do that but i yeah. agree we will jump to that right away Thank you for whipping this up in a way. That's what I do. Um, uh, I don't think we've ever had that actually broadcast on the podcast, so it's interesting for you to know. I cracked the whip. Great. Rambles. Um, with the, uh, so you don't really, like, this is maybe misconception. You don't die from having HIV or AIDS. It's whatever you contract because your immune system is basically shut off. Exactly. So you die of whatever. subsequent things that happen because you pneumonia. don't have yeah. So, yeah, pneumonia. So for you're sure. the most, yeah. basically at the that point, you're the most vulnerable yeah. people yeah. in the world because Absolutely. your immune systems are basically shut off. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think a lot of people know that about HIV and AIDS, but I'm not sure if it's like fully transparent yeah. that totally. that's what's going on because totally. people are like, oh, he had AIDS, he died. He died of AIDS. Yeah. It's or like, he, no, no. Yeah. Well, he, technically that... It was it, the it, cause. It was the cause of, of what? What killed yeah. him? It was the cause of yeah. the cause that killed yeah. him. Because it's yeah. like really at that. It point, created a situation that allowed absolutely. the cause of death. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when your body can't react to anything, any foreign objects that are coming into it, right? Yeah, uh, that's very dangerous. And totally. It's very hard to live your life yeah. uh, effectively. You basically have to live in a bubble yeah. uh, to avoid any contact any with anything, right? Any sort of virus or any bacteria. Yeah. yeah. So that's so, good to know. So, Marina, you were off the top. You mentioned that. You were looking at in utero neurocognitive develop or neurodevelopment of infants. Uh, yeah, mothers so, have HIV. Yes, I'm actually looking at the postnatal neurodevelopment, okay, but of infants me, who were in utero exposed to okay. HIV. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump into it then. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yes. Let's I think. Do it. Can yes. I just define yeah. prenatal exposure and in utero? Yes, exposure. I think that's great. Yeah, because postnatal and vertical transmission, because those are different. Yeah. Yes. So you just said a couple of things that I didn't understand, Maria. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so, I mean, postnatal. Yes. In utero. Prenatal. Prenatal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> break it. My, we'll my break face it down. Is like, I don't know what. You, this is a conversation with somebody who's never thought about having kids. Like, it's just like, yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, so where do babies come from? That's the first question I have for you. Just so we can get to this stage. Yeah. So, so give me a little. Two like... People love each other very much. 
a stork comes to their house. Yes, of course, and it delivers it. Yeah. So that's postnatal, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. When the stork gets here, after that, that's postnatal. Okay, okay. Got it, got it, got it. So give us a little bit, uh, before we jump into your research yeah. questions and what and what you're doing with your work, uh, give us a couple of definitions on what's postnatal, what's, uh, there's a couple other things that you wanted to mention as well. So yeah. give us a little spiel on what those mean. Yeah, so my research is looking at um, the postnatal development, neurodevelopment of infants. So we're talking about their neurodevelopment from the time they were born, um, and our study will be collecting data until at least two years of age. Um, and these infants were prenatally exposed to HIV. So that means during the prenatal period, which is from conception or time of conception up until birth. Um, so their entire time spent in the womb or in utero, it's also called. Um, so you'll frequently hear me say like in utero exposure. That's what I'm talking about, exposure to HIV while the mom was carrying the baby. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So vertical transmission uh, occurs when mom is HIV infected and transmits the virus to her baby or her infant, or sorry, her fetus, which is the word for a baby when it's still in utero, right. um, or her baby or infant postnatally. So that refers, vertical means transmission happened during pregnancy, uh, during childbirth, or through breast milk, okay, during breastfeeding. Right. Yeah. So the vertical could be, I, I didn't even think about having postnatal transmission. Through breastfeeding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's actually, yeah my specifics and so yeah. are they recommended to i mean before we get into your sorry yeah. I keep jumping. are they recommended not to breastfeed so this is actually kind of a really important idea that forms a huge chunk of my project okay um, so we're, we're gonna touch yeah. on this then yeah for yeah. sure okay, okay. let's put that aside for a second no 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 we'll tease yeah. it and then okay. we'll come back to it because <laughs> i think that's really yeah. really really interesting I didn't, yeah. I didn't think about that before we got in. So now yeah, we'll, we'll get we'll on talk to a lot of it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Kyle and I are going to guess from Marina's <laughs> research questions what her hypotheses were. And we're going to keep score <laughs> this season, I guess. If we remember to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. our, our viewers can keep score and they can let us know who's winning. Um, <laughs> so, Marina, what are your, how many, first off, how many research questions are we talking about today? I currently have preliminary data to answer two. Okay, so we'll do, let's focus on the two. Okay. Does that work? Yeah, let's do yeah. the two. So we got two research questions for us, Marina. Um, let's start with the first. Okay, so my first question was, are there associations between HIV exposure in utero without infection? So remember, that means the infant became, was not infected yeah. vertically by the mother. Um, and infant growth and neurodevelopmental outcomes at birth and 10 weeks. At birth and 10 weeks. Yes, so that's the data I have so far. Interesting. So the question being... In, uh, infants that were not uh, affected by the are not infected with HIV from their mother vertically. Uh, does it impact their growth at one week and ten weeks? Sorry, sorry at birth. At and birth. 10 at weeks. birth and ten weeks. And birth and neurodevelopment. Okay. Or sorry, um, growth and neurodevelopment. Growth and neurodevelopment. Are we measuring neurodevelopment? Oh, well, hold on. Whoa. We'll figure that oh. out. <laughs> you can't. You can't ask any questions. No, <laughs> question. So now we have hypotheses. Please. So do we think that? Okay. Do we think that infants that are not infected? Uh, will have neurodevelopmental or and growth uh, will, will impact their growth or neurodevelopment yeah. at birth in 10 weeks. Yeah. I would say no. My hypothesis is that it will not impact their growth. I'm going to go with no as well. Ooh, playing it safe. Okay. So for growth first? Uh, oh, I guess we could do growth and different. neurodevelopment. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, okay, they are okay. different. So I'll do, I'm going to do no to growth. Yeah. And no to neurodevelopment. <laughs> okay. I'm going to differ. I'm going to go yes to growth and no to neurodevelopment. Okay. Okay. So it does, So he's predicting that it will impact their growth, but not their neurodevelopment. And I'm no either way. Okay. okay. I and just then, have to choose something different for yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. boring. And you get to go first next one. And so the, the second <laughs> research question. Second research question is, uh, are associations between infant HIV exposure status, so whether they were exposed or not, because we have a control group, right? Okay. Um, and developmental outcomes, so growth and neurodevelopment, uh, affected by reports of food security. Food security, interesting. Food security. Oh, throwing a wrench into this. And/or malnutrition. Okay. Okay. Well. Okay. I got to think like malnutrition certainly would impact growth and and neurodevelopment. Yeah, I would think so too. So I'm going to agree with that. So I think yes, okay. it would it would impact it. So we have our hypotheses now. What was your hypothesis? Yeah. So yeah. we hypothesized that the in utero exposure and uninfection uh, would relate to poor postnatal development um, for both growth and neurodevelopment at birth in ten weeks. Okay. okay. So we are both wrong. 
with the researcher's hypotheses, <laughs> yeah. but the findings may yeah, say something say. different. <laughs> right. I was, so. a little, I was a little less wrong. You were more wrong. Oh. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Let's, that's let's fine. let the data speak for itself. <laughs> so as of right now, Kyle is 0.5, I am zero yeah. for the hypotheses matching. Yes. Okay. Uh, so let's go into this one then. Yeah. How did you guys test this? What was the methodology? And then what did you find? So our data is being collected in a study that's taking or yeah, a study that's taking place in uh, Pretoria, South Africa. So the data that I'm going to present today was actually collected in a pilot study that finished about a year ago. Um, and there's an ongoing observational study that will kind of form phase two of my thesis um, that has a much larger N and the recruitment's still going on. Um, much larger N. Is mean means yes, a sample size, larger sample so size, more people that it were. Actually yeah. Hiring. So the pilot study was kind of just used to see if there was anything worth touching on to apply to get more funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the ongoing study, the observational scaled up version, has been going on for just over a year now. Yeah. Um, That's great. I'm glad you mentioned it. I don't think we talked a lot about pilot tests and pilot yeah. studies. No. Uh, but it's something that happens a lot in research where you have to oh, so pilot important. something and you have to say, is this important with a small group of people so we can go and get funding yeah. for a yeah. bigger group to, to test see what's it. going on. Yeah. 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 We're following this rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So growth uh, was measured at birth. So we measure length, uh, weight, calculate BMI from that head circumference. Um, and at birth, APGAR scoring is used to assess neurodevelopment, um, which is basically like a reflex test at one minute postnatally, five minutes postnatally. And then sometimes if those scores are low, they'll also do a test at 10 minutes. Um, we only have data for one in five minutes, but all the infants in our study scored quite, like, quite healthily. At birth, um, there was actually no differences between the two groups for BMI length and weight. Um, but the HIV exposed infants did actually have a lower head circumference than those who were unexposed. So then the control population. Um, okay. So I don't really know what to make of that. Yes. With body size. So how, do, so what does head circumference really say for you? Or what, what do you guys think that that's really saying? So we also have, there's a variable in here that I actually haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also looking at, because it's actually not a part of my research. It's just been written right. up in this one abstract. Yeah. Um, so we have an immune measure that's measuring um, proportions of these inflammatory immune cells in the blood of these infants. So a higher measure of these cells essentially says that there's more inflammation in that infant's bloodstream. And we also saw that there was higher levels of these inflammatory markers in the infants who were exposed to HIV. So our sort of conclusion for this abstract is that those activated pro-inflammatory pathways that are evident at birth um, may initiate some pro-inflammatory pathway that targets the brain and affects the development of the brain because a pro-inflammatory environment may negatively impact uh, brain development. But it's not impacting the rest so of the far. body so far that you yeah. um, Interesting. It's important to say, though, RN is 55. It's a small pilot study. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so mm-hmm. we actually had quite high attrition among the control population at 10 weeks so when i talk about those results i can explain a bit of that too um and sorry what was your control population uh so it's a group of infants that were born and moms were pregnant at the same time but the moms are not Not, hiv positive positive. yeah but they're from the same communities same uh catchment area for the hospital and then the experimental group is non-vertically transmitted but HIV exposed. exposed. Yes, Children. exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. So the difference between the two groups uh, relates to the mom's HIV status. And so the head size was the only significant finding off the pilot study. For growth. For growth. Yes. And yeah. yes, there was actually no differences between APGAR either between the two groups. So no differences in neurodevelopment at birth. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And so... Which is great news. Yes. That is oh, good. it's awesome. That is yeah. really good news. Yeah. yeah. And so what about neurodevelopment? So at 10 weeks, um, there were actually no differences in the growth measurements. So that difference in head circumference had disappeared Mm -hmm. in the data um the hiv exposed infants scored lower for fine motor measurements um and actually higher for expressive language measurements and then there were no differences for gross motor receptive language or uh play behavior or relating and response behavior so those were kind of the six different themes that were measured um we did lose over half of the control population so i went back and did some comparisons of just the birth data among the control sample of those who came to follow up and those who didn't and it appears that those who were in attendance at the 10-week follow-up appointment Mm -hmm. uh, they were skinnier they had lower bmis so it's 
they're more prone to go yeah, back to Yeah, they the may be more prone to come back yeah. to a follow-up appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the infants who are healthier, um, their mothers may not bring them back because they, one, don't have a ton to gain from participating in the study because they're a control group and their infants are seemingly healthy. So yeah, yeah. So we may have a biased that's, follow-up sample. So I'm it's really hard glad to, you mentioned that because yeah. that's, that's mm-hmm. something that not that not everybody mentions when they're talking about the research yeah. because these findings you're comparing these two groups yeah but the one group might be biased in a way or skewed in a way that, in a, as you yeah mentioned. and we had much higher retention among those who were hiv exposed so among the hiv positive mothers mm-hmm. um so yeah we're just cautious about what conclusions we draw because it already is such a small sample size right. um it's only one follow-up time point and we had such high attrition in our control right but now so that was the pilot study findings right yes. so that's yeah. still enough to kind of investigate and see what's going on yeah Uh, yeah. there's a lot there that could be explored and is being explored by you guys currently yes yes very cool uh i'm winning oh i don't know about that (laughs) (laughs) i don't know about that uh i'll let marina be the arbiter (laughs) it's not about me winning so so that is uh that's about me winning So that was the first research question. Those yes. are the findings that you found. Research question number one. Second hypothesis, or second yeah. research question. So yeah. we were looking at whether there was associations between uh, HIV exposure status, or sorry, whether the associations between HIV exposure status and developmental outcomes, so neuro and growth, uh, were affected by the food security circumstances. Um, and we were also looking at breastfeeding, but I'll just touch on that last. Yeah, um, absolutely. So... We found so I we hypothesized that early nutritional environments, uh, as measured by uh, food security and breastfeeding practices, um, and in utero HIV exposure would associate with poor development. So we thought that those who were both exposed to HIV in utero and experienced uh, more trying or more adverse early nutritional environments would experience confounding effects of those two experiences versus those who weren't HIV exposed but did experience malnutrition or something like that um, Mm. would not have the same degree of adverse outcome. When you say uh, food security, Mm -hmm. do you mind just defining that for me? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's measured um, using a questionnaire that asks mom mothers how often their household runs out of food, how often they worry about food run out. whether or not they can afford what they perceive to be a healthy meal. Okay. Um, yeah, question, questions like that. So so it's it's truly about food security, yeah, food, food scarcity exactly. in, the, in the home. Yeah, okay. food insecurity okay. might even food be a better insecurity. way okay. to say it. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we found that of the infants whose mothers reported not always having enough to eat, um, they actually had a lower growth rate between birth and 10 weeks. So... If the infant was from a household that reported not always having enough to eat, they presented a lower growth rate. Um, which is not surprising. Which is, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is agreeable with yeah. what you know about food and yeah. its requirement for right. healthy, healthy body. Like exactly. Healthy, eating healthy food. Yeah. Um, and among infants whose mothers reported worrying about having adequate food, so just um, worrying about having food, not necessarily actually experiencing food run out but they were worried about running out of food um those infants had lower length um lower expressive language scores lower relating and response scores uh, and lower play scores at 10 weeks so when compared to mothers who never who reported never having to worry um yeah and it wasn't like every mother who reported worrying also reported having food run out mm-hmm. um so this is yeah, it's not like a it's two separate camps. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah perceptions it's, about food perceive, run out effects. Are, are you thinking about your food scarcity or exactly. like how, how you're going to get the food? Yeah. Okay, I have some hypotheses on top mm-hmm. of that to, yeah. as to why that's going on. I'm interested yeah. in what you guys were thinking. Yeah. Um, my thought for this is that it's kind of like the Maslow's hierarchy of like needs fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So like it's basically stating that there's a there's this hierarchy or this like triangle that you'll see that basically you have these need fulfillments mm-hmm. uh, that allow you to kind of eventually live a, a healthy or the best life, I guess, is, is the concept. And so physiological needs is at the bottom. Yes. And that would be exactly what you're looking at here mm-hmm. is this like this need for food and Adequate need to, food. to live and yeah. <laughs> to, to fuel your body. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking if the if the individuals that are constantly thinking about this about food and how they're going to get food each day even if it's not 
a current issue for them, they might not be fulfilling these other things like safety, love and belonging, esteem, and then the top is self-actualization. They might not be fulfilling those needs um, for their children or something like that. And maybe that's why this is like a, this is my completely uneducated I'm gonna assumption take, as well. I'll take a stab at it from a, a slightly more cognitive sort of physiological point of view. Yeah. I'm thinking that it has to do with the fact that or what I what I'm immediately jumping to in my mind is this perception of scarcity mm-hmm. or insecurity or whatever term you might use is in fact related to stress and cortisol release and that cortisol release is affecting cognitive performance and development which I think we know to be the case. Yeah. It's this is actually interesting because the only scores that were lower among those who actually reported running out of food were the relating and response behavior. So there were actually mm. much more effects observed in among the group that reported just worrying, worrying about, about food run out. And I hadn't really thought about it in this way. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so do you guys have, have you guys like really, is there another reason or anything that you guys have really thought towards that? Or is it just kind of just trying to figure out what the heck's going on <laughs> yeah. for the next pilot? Yeah. Like for, and because it's a pilot study is still, you're, you are comparing smaller numbers, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And we still have, so we have some food recall data that we haven't, um, or sorry, dietary recall data that we haven't run yet. Um, so that'll give us a better idea of what, actual food is being consumed and hopefully estimates of what amounts are being consumed Mm. um so that's kind of the next stage to add to this um and among or of this data set there was no differences no exacerbated effects were observed between the two hiv versus hiv negative group um as we had hypothesized incorrectly for yeah this finding so um these uh, observations were taken regardless of HIV exposure status of the infants. Interesting. And it, yeah. I, think, I think this is kind of cool as well to show that uh, hypotheses are not always right when it comes yeah, to research. Totally. And like totally. the majority of the time, they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how many times I've actually been right with an hypothesis go from the get-go, right? And this is where it, you adapt and you learn from these pilot studies specifically. Yeah. Pilot studies are usually to kind of see what's going on. It's funny you test. mentioned that. I was... Uh, I. I was a teaching assistant teaching fellow for a course, uh, a research methods course Mm -hmm. this last semester. And I had a whole whack of students come to me and they were all really upset and and they didn't know how to write these papers they had to write because their hypotheses were wrong. Yeah. And it was like trying to explain to them that that's okay. That's all right. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It happens. We're all wrong. (laughs) If if we were right all the time, we wouldn't have to do the ask these questions yeah we already knew. Just tell you what the answer was. Yeah. 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 And I think that is an important thing with research too. People like, Sometimes people will read the results or hear the results of saying like, yeah, well, no, duh. That, of course, that's what I would guess. And it's like, uh. but, Yeah, it's not always like that. Yeah. And the findings, like in this case, we had one broad hypothesis and we're seeing some, we're not seeing a lot of it. So it's important to tease apart. And yeah. yeah. And, and the, the amount of measurements you guys are taking too, right? So yeah. this body growth isn't just one measurement. There's no. a bunch of parts of this growth yeah. and this neurodevelopment. So yeah. the way that you guys compartmentalize these and, and basically say, is it, impacting one over the other yeah. or more one more the, more than the other like whatever a right? certain area of yeah. development neurodevelopment yeah and than, that's really yeah. important for totally. you guys to explore and figure out with a larger sample size which i'm stoked that you guys are doing yeah. yeah so what are the next steps for your study i know you guys are collecting data as yeah. you said so i'll talk a little bit about breastfeeding yeah um, oh sure yeah so we actually didn't have very much variance in the reported breastfeeding practices among the pilot cohort. So it was really hard to look at any effects of different breastfeeding practices because mm-hmm. there really just wasn't that much variability. Um, variability in the sense that they were all breastfeeding? Or yeah, they were all breastfeeding. Yeah. yeah. So also to go back to that, because you asked earlier, yeah. is it recommended that they breastfeed? Um, so it actually is. Um, it's recommended that if they are on a consistent ART drug regimen um, and they have a controlled low viral load, they should be breastfeeding. Um, And there's tons of barriers to that because there's tons of stigmas surrounding Mm -hmm. the safety of an HIV positive woman breastfeeding her child. Um, But the the research shows that the benefits of breastfeeding outweigh that very, very, very minuscule risk of transmission if the mom is, or her HIV is effectively controlled by the treatments. Really quickly, just to interject. Yeah. I think it, I think what you're saying there is super important because we also have to consider all the other aspects that occur in terms of hormonal changes for the mother. All the but, challenges. All the challenges. Yeah. Like if she's not appropriately bonding with the child, um, that can be a huge problem. And I know for some mothers, breastfeeding is a huge component of that. Yeah, and there's so many. There's so much going on in those first few days, weeks, years. It's the 
breastfeeding recommendations are not accessible to a lot of women. So it's actually recommended that they exclusively breastfeed for six months and then mix feed for up to two years. Um, And if you take into consideration like women who have to go back to work, women who um, have other children, women, you know, there's so many barriers to being able to be the sole source of food for your newborn Mm -hmm. in those first few months. And then you add shame that can be associated with breastfeeding if you have HIV and ideas that people in your community or family have about the safety of you doing that. That adds a huge stressor. So yeah, there's so many different factors to that's yeah. really cool though i'm i'm glad that that's the recommendation it's yeah. It, it's yeah again it's reiterating this fact that we've come so far that this that, is what we want yeah HIV positive that you're actually that doing. we're actually yeah. recommending individuals that are yeah. taking ARTs that are yeah. HIV positive to actually to breastfeed, breastfeed which is yeah just, it's i mean which would otherwise be a transmittable source of HIV route for of the, H- HIV transmission yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. it's actually quite an ineffective way to transmit HIV but the yeah. risk would if the, the HIV is, is uncontrolled, yeah, right, the yes. risk would it's still, yeah. yeah. Um, so our next steps, we actually have breast milk that will be coming uh, from South Africa very soon for us to analyze. So we'll be looking at um, immune factors and nutrient metabolites, so nutrient factors in the breast milk, um, to see if there's certain signatures that are associate with the maternal HIV status. And then we'll be looking at whether those signatures associate, any of those signatures um, associate with any of the developmental outcomes in the infants. Very cool. Yeah, so. I don't even think there needs to really be an implication section here. I, yeah. I think we've like it's, it's yeah, pretty so, translated. <laughs> so the implications are pretty clear, yeah. people. <laughs> I think that's it for the first half. Should cool. we take us a break? Yeah, I think we go yeah. break. Yeah. Sounds All right. Good. Well, uh, Marina, thank you for joining us for the first half of the show. We'll take a quick break. Uh, we'll have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. And uh, when we come back, we'll hit up some myths and misconceptions. Cool. All right. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, welcome, welcome to Rapid Fire, season two, <laughs> season episode two. two. It's hotter, faster, harder. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> All right, uh, top listen song of last year, 2018. Oh, um, I actually, I spent a lot of this year driving because um, I was traveling actually in a van. So we listened actually to um, Dancing in the Moonlight a lot on that road there trip because it's a fun tune to sing hell yeah um, yeah that's probably it wasn't my Spotify so I don't have the list but it was my friends and I feel like that was our most played played travel tune mm-hmm. yeah. you gotta have a good singing song oh for, yeah there's yeah, a lot of singing <laughs> Drake what's your favorite uh, singing song for a road trip <laughs> my favorite singing song yeah. I will say um, uh, What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers is <laughs> one of my favorites I love that song another great track yeah love it um, all right uh, yours, Kyle. I think I feel like you want me to ask uh, you. A t- tradition: when my dad and I go on my fishing trip, our fishing trip every year, it's always "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones. Mm. Okay, as loud as the car will play it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Favorite uh, favorite local craft brewery. <gasps> oh, Strange Fellows. Oh, yeah. Favorite beer from Strange Fellows? Their summer raspberry sour. Ah. Yes. yes. Yeah. So good. Can't see me doing the. <laughs> <laughs> Not a sour brewery. guy. Oh no! Oh, I love. No, I love. Yeah. yeah. Oh Excellent. yeah, sorry. He was kissing his fingers. <laughs> yeah, for those monster. who can't see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I'm, again, you can keep going. You're doing well. What's your guys's favorite local? Ooh, uh, I I gotta go Brass Neck. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and any of their, my favorite beer I think of all time is the Passive Aggressive by Brass Okay. Neck. I don't know if I've had. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. If anybody's looking to import from Vancouver, <laughs> yeah. these are really good spots. Yeah. I like uh, Yellow Dog. Okay. Yellow yeah, Dog's yeah, yeah. Yellow nice. Dog has my favorite hazy IPA I've ever mm. had. Mm. Bridge uh, is great too on mm. the North Shore. Yes. Yeah. Bridge. Really, and really good. Bourbon Blood Orange. Yes. Yeah. It's tasty. There you go. Anybody that's looking for recommendations, <laughs> here they are. Yeah. Come out to Vancouver. We'll do a brewery Tons tour. Tons of breweries. Yeah. Brain sponsored brewery <laughs> tour. <laughs> I always ask this one favorite mytholo- mythological creature. Mythological creature. 
probably Bigfoot. Bigfoot? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. When I was in Utah last year, we decided to start listening to these like podcasts, kind of conspiracy type <laughs> podcasts about Bigfoot, and they're pretty crazy. <laughs> a lot going on. The big yeah. hairy man. <laughs> Honestly, the stories are terrifying. <laughs> Bigfoot is a very interesting creature. I think yeah. that's why I get so much notoriety. And there's right? so much, there's so many stories, yeah. so many sightings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got to be real. There's yeah. no way. If you uh, listen to this podcast, it's pretty convincing. <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed to admit. Like when you, you go into it and you're like, oh, this is going to be dumb. And then you hear people on it being like, no, I never believed. I know how stupid I sound. And, and I'm like, oh, no. That's exactly you how you would sound. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. I'm like, this sounds like what I would say if yeah, I sound like, like Listen, I would never believe this. Yeah. It did happen. I thought they were nuts too. And now I'm one of them. Maybe <laughs> like, they no. just know that and they're just doing it. Yeah, to yeah. yeah, true, true. There's so many layers. <laughs> Great psychological. Yeah. Awful. Interesting. Anyways, that was a slow rapid fire. Yeah. <laughs> we said rapid Four fire be really questions. fast. Yeah. <laughs> That was the slowed down version. Yeah. That's the remix of the remix. I'm going to speed that up to two times. Yeah, two we'll times. Okay. Yeah. We'll sound like a good <laughs> All right. Great. Excellent. Hit us with the tune strike. Yes. Boom. Boop. Welcome back to Brain Buzz. I am today's guest. My name is Marina, and I'm a researcher in uh, maternal HIV and postnatal neurodevelopment uh, research. And I'm here with your host. Thanks, Marina. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Okay. Yeah. Mis misconceptions. Yeah. There's a ton. There's a ton. Yeah. So HIV. Let's uh, dive in. Yeah. So I thought we should generally just start with myths uh, surrounding transmission risks. So there's I think assumptions that you can transmit because people hear fluids and yeah. they think that saliva, uh, sweat are included. Mm -hmm. um, saliva and sweat do not carry high enough uh, viral loads of HIV to transmit the virus. Okay. So you cannot get HIV from kissing someone who has HIV unless you both have open wounds in your mouth mm -hmm. and the, there's a transmit of um, blood fluid through that so okay. it's not actually through the saliva oh, um okay. you can't transmit hiv through sharing dishes with someone who has hiv through touching someone with that that has hiv unless you're rubbing open mm. wounds um even in you know like yeah. exchanging blood wasn't there um, the big thing with princess diana hugging yes the, yeah the photo there's yeah, a the yeah HIV positive yeah and people are freaking out because yeah. like yeah you why, can't. Would you why would you yeah. touch somebody with yeah. hiv yeah there's that's zero, definitely something that's zero been... transmission risk through hugs through yeah. touching through yeah um what about toilet seats swimming those yeah are two like others. urine yeah. fecal matter can you transmit through that no no so fecal matter is is low yeah, yeah too low to transmit there you go yeah that's something i never really asked and now i know yeah yeah, yeah. it's confusing because when people hear fluids mm -hmm. they think all the fluids but yeah. it's not it's all not the fluids. Yeah. yeah it's, it's only not. ones that can carry the the higher viral the higher loads, viral so which blood would obviously and, be blood yeah and semen and does as well semen yeah okay yeah interesting and so if semen carries the viral load how, can a male contract from a female yes. from vaginal fluid yes yeah yeah um i my understanding is that the transmission risk is lower um simply because of the difference in volume of tissue exposure right. so obviously um a seminal ejaculation into a female creates more opportunity of for absorption than unprotected sex for transmission from female to male yeah um because yeah the transfer of fluid is kind of one way mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense yeah it's interesting this entire conversation and certainly we've been talking about maternal transmission mm -hmm. but historically mm -hmm. it's always been like a disease for homosexual people. yeah the men who have sex with men right with men, yeah. yeah so it's it's very just as a sort of overarching narrative to the yeah. entire episode it's very totally. interesting that we've We've, we've talked for... We haven't even talked about it. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't talked about... An hour and a half HIV. we've been talking yeah. about HIV and we haven't talked about, totally. about that aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. So is there any increased risk for men who have sex with men? Yes. For contracting HIV? Yeah. And I believe that relates to um, the increased risks of tearing with anal intercourse, um, mm. which leads to increased fluid transfers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As you said, like, like there's a possibility if you're... Uh, like if there's cuts in your in your like mouth or whatever yeah. th that that increases your chances yeah. obviously whenever you're having anal sex and there's tearing within there yeah. and you have semen transmission yeah. it's an increased it's op increased opportunities of right course. yeah and that is why the prevalence rates were, were probably so high were higher and, yeah and i'll just make a note since we're talking about rates in men yeah. versus women um yeah. the 
it's sort of the epidemiology of HIV looks really, really different in different countries. So oh, yeah. um, working in South Africa, the context there for our study, um, 60%, I believe, of the, I think it's about 6.8 million people in South Africa who are living with HIV, 60% of those people are women of reproductive age. So that's why this issue, um, like maternal HIV research, is such an important uh, health topic there. Um, whereas in Canada, the highest rates are actually still observed among men who have sex with men. Hmm. So, of course, this is still an important topic here, but our HIV distribution looks very different um, yeah. still in Canada. So it's that's really interesting because mm-hmm. the differences between cultures always something you have to take into consideration. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you might not have the answer, I'm not sure, yeah. but um, what is the most likely mode of transmission for women in South Africa then? So like... I believe uh, it's heterosexual sex. Heterosexual sex. Yeah. So it is still the yeah. males uh, yeah. transmitting. transmitting the disease yeah. to 60% or yeah. to, to a larger rate of women. Yeah. And I believe, I can't speak to the exact numbers, but I believe that um, injection drug use is a much more prominent mode of transmission in Canada. Um, right. Yeah. Like if you're looking at rates per capita per HIV. Yes. Um, yeah. And even our, yeah, our um, HIV rates vary drastically across the country. So in uh, Saskatoon, I believe, and surrounding areas in Saskatchewan, um, the rates are like a few folds higher than they are in the rest of Canada. So it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to address when it comes to just HIV and just sexual, sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. Yeah. People don't check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they they might unknowingly be passing it along to multiple totally. partners, and yeah. I think that's it's not it's generally not a malicious thing. Where totally, like, I know I have this. It's a matter of yeah. I never got checked, and yeah, and I think it's important to note that that happens at all class levels oh, and yeah. all. You know, like there's this idea that HIV is this like dirty disease that you can only get if you're of a certain type of person, but it's like any other STI. People transmit it without knowing and. You know, if you're having unprotected sex and you haven't been tested and you don't know if your partner's been tested, you're at equal risk, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah. it's too bad. How do you know you have HIV? When When is the point that you're mm-hmm. going to go and get tested? Or when are you going to start seeing symptoms of this that will urge you to go and so get kind of checked? what would the first symptoms yeah, be? Yeah, because I'm thinking we talk we talk a lot about managing HIV, right? Yeah. Are there Are there presenting symptoms that would cause someone to go get checked? Or is it a matter of happenstance and going to get checked or just being vigilant and going and getting checked? Yeah. So I would imagine that the first symptoms would be similar to things that present when your immune system is failing. Okay. Um, so just getting sick more frequently. Yeah, fevers, yeah. things like that. Um, and when Would you, they jump to that conclusion? Um, I would say, like, in my experience in Canada, they, they haven't for, like, because even when I've been for an STI check, I've had to ask to get a full panel to get the blood test as well because often they'll just do the vaginal swab. Um, If you're getting a pap test at the same time, they might do that Um, because it's not, and I can't speak, not speaking for all doctors or, you know, anything like that. But in my experience, I've actually had to ask to also get the full workup because Mm -hmm. that's what I'm worried about. Um, Not that I have like a specific worry, but, you know, if you're just taking care of your health, you want to, yeah, if you're going in anyways, Why not just get a full why do you half of it? Why do half of it when you can do the full? And it keeps test. you safer. It keeps your partner safer. Um, so I, because I've never really gone in with flu symptoms, wondering and gotten a test for that, I can't say how quickly they would jump to that mm-hmm. um, as like a medical professional. But my guess, given their unurgency un- in running a blood test when I've been in for an STI check, I would say they probably don't jump to it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd imagine they'd identify it quicker if you present with what they would consider high-risk behaviors, so right. injection drug use or things like that, um, yeah. if that's something you're willing to disclose to your doctor, yeah. you know? So Yeah, and then also disclose sh- everything to your yeah. doctor. <laughs> tell them For everything. God's sake, just tell them yeah. everything. Like, they're not there to judge. Yeah, so if you don't, if you don't present with a ton of high-risk behavior, I would imagine that they're not going to be very quick to test for it. Right, um, yeah, that's yeah. fair. And I mean, I see that. I definitely yeah. understand that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, stigma can also play a role in disclosing these things though right? oh and, and, absolutely. and a treatment that you might yeah. uh as someone as a man man who has sex with men mm-hmm. do you want to disclose to your family doctor or to another doctor mm-hmm. that you are maybe having sex with men and that's puts and you is at it risk. safe for you to do so yeah. depending on the community you're in yeah and, absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah and so those are all things that you have to play part that play totally. a part in actually getting 
the proper treatment, treatment for, for HIV. HIV and even the test, right? Yeah. There's even all knowing. these stigmas that lead you to, yeah. yeah. And especially, are you going to disclose that you use illicit drugs? That yeah. could put you in danger too, yeah. if you're, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So those are all things that, I mean, are a part of this conversation. Oh yeah, the uh, stigma and the like social context that we talk about HIV in are super super relevant and prevalent within the research questions and our findings and the way we interpret everything absolutely yeah all right with that we'll draw this episode episode two of season two to a conclusion marina thank you very much for coming on sharing your expertise with us in the world um drake and i have enjoyed it immensely and i'm sure that our thank audience so will much. as well so have i um how could people get in touch with you if they want to learn a little bit more yeah so i am on twitter at marina k white so that's marina m-a-r-i-n-a um k and then white like the color um you can also read a little bit more about what our lab does there's a ton of different types of research maternal health research that goes on in our lab um there's a lot of placenta work a lot of work with metabolic disease in mothers and things like that there's a ton of cool stuff going on really interesting research um at connorlab.ca so that's c-o-n-n-o-r lab.ca and then uh, my supervisor Kristen connor uh, her twitter account is kc and then the zero the digit zero for the o n n digit zero r so k connor but those are digits <laughs> and she's always tweeting about what's going on in our lab and research updates and things that we're up to so awesome yeah. we, we will also be following we we are following both of you guys yeah, now so cool. anybody that's interested we will be posting you guys and linking you guys in awesome. when, this, when this gets published. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't want to yeah, do those double zeros, e- e- <laughs> you can find it through that. Yeah, <laughs> Everything will be made readily available. Uh, if you found this uh, episode on Twitter, you'll find a link, obviously, to our guest um, our guests there. Uh, you can also check us out at brainbuzzpodcast.com, where not only will we have uh, more information about this episode, including links uh, to the lab website, yeah. um, as well as publications from the lab and from Marina. But as well, you can go check out Marina's uh, page on the guest bios, and we'll have all of her uh, contact information there for uh, ease of access. Perfect. So check check her out there. Yep. Um, as for us, you know where to find us, brainbuzzpodcast.com, brainbuzzpod uh, at, oh, geez. You know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a couple episodes. <laughs> you can check us out at brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can head over to Twitter at brainbuzzpod, uh, Instagram as well, Facebook. We're now proudly the owners of a Spotify URL, so check Yay. us out on Spotify if that's your preferred mode of picking up and digesting your favorite podcasts. As always, we'll be on uh, iTunes and Google Play as well. So with that, we'll wrap up the episode. Uh, once again, Marina, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Absolutely been a blast. Yes. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Perfect.